To borrow Richard Lou's words in describing our guest today, David Sobel is one of the pioneer voices in children and nature movement. And you can easily see why by simply looking at his contribution. David has made it his mission to educate and advocate for the preservation of children's nature connection by sharing his experience as a father of two, his countless keynotes, articles, a cheeky seven books, including one of my all-time faves, Wild Play, link in the bio. Um, please welcome into the Worthy Studio, all the way from New Hampshire, our special guest, David Sobel. Hi, Lucas. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Um, I carry this book around. I look forward to getting into it. But as we um, get a bit nostalgic and we start with a beautiful reflection, um, where did you like to play as a child? Uh, my most prominent childhood play memories come from uh, living on the Connecticut coast of Long Island Sound. So I lived right on the beach and I had free access to uh, the beach, which was both sandy shore and rocky shore, and then expansive salt marshes and abandoned farm fields. And so I played a lot in salt marshes and um, and I had a favorite place that I would go to. I would walk down the beach to a place where there was a seawall of jumbled rock and there was lots of uh, little patches of mica in those rocks and I would go and harvest mica. I referred to it as the mica mine and the mica mine. So it's a lot of my early provocative memories are shoreline and, and coastline memories. Um, for the unfamiliar Australians listening, mm -hmm. um, right. what is a salt marsh <laughs> and what is mica? Oh, really? Mica yeah. too? Oh, yeah. Uh, mica is a, um, a mineral that forms in very thin transparent sheets Right, so it's uh, it was called isinglass. So it was used as uh, for windows in um, in heating elements, and um, so you could pry it off of rocks in these really thin, pliable sheets. And salt marshes are intertidal zone areas that I think in Australia would be. Uh, a mangrove swamps, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. But, but so it's mangrove swamps in tropical areas, but in more Northern climes, the intertidal areas that are flat are salt mm. marshes. So they're, uh, uh, they're like salt, they're like meadows, but they're uh, salt tolerant plants that grow there. Right, paints a beautiful picture. Yeah. Um, and. Just to go a bit deeper on that experience, what the seasonality of that, what did it look like? Um, that was in, so in Connecticut, it's a regular, or at least it used to be a regular four season, you know, clearly defined fall, winter, spring, summer. Uh, so uh, winter, you know, temp lots of snow, temperatures below, below freezing a lot of the time. Summer temperatures in the high in the 90s. What is that? 35 centigrade. Um, so distinctive winters um, with a clear, prominent uh, summer season. 
nice. Um, here on the Gold Coast, we get like three summers. Right, exactly. So it's, it's, it's hot and wet, hot and dry, or hot and windy. Right. <laughs> um, when you reflect on your childhood and it's that it was just play and it wasn't learning for learning's sake, it was just exploration and the byproduct was obviously learning. But how did those experiences transfer and contribute um, to the, your values as an adult and the work you do, those links? Yeah, it was, um, I always say I had negligent parents, so I had a free range <laughs> childhood, right? So I was, I was one of those kids that, you know, you left the house in the morning and uh, maybe you'd come back for lunch. And then there was one of those classic old kind of sh ship's bells that was outside of our house. And so somebody would ring the bell, you know, which the sound would travel for you know, half a mile, someone would ring the bell to call us home for dinner. Um, and so we were just gone a lot of the time doing dangerous stuff. Um, and um, so I had free access to the natural world and to adventure and exploration. And that was uh, really important to me when I became a parent is to try and provide that same free access to the natural world and not submit to the anxiety and uh, over protectiveness that had become the cultural norm by the time I was a parent. Yeah. Speaking about those cultural norms and for so many children today that that experience that you had might as well be Mars. Right. So what's the impact on our children of today lacking these experiences? The impact is that kids become couch potatoes, you know, they become uh, inured to the indoor and digital world. They're not, uh, they don't have a sense that the natural world is friendly or a place for fun and therefore they don't care about it and therefore they don't engage in environmentally responsible behaviors or uh, vote for environmentally uh, uh, responsible politicians. So it it's a cycle of disassociation from the natural world, uh, which leads to the deterioration of the natural world. Yeah, there's no innate response to care for the thing that cares for me or care for the thing that brings me joy. There's no relationship there. Right, right exactly. Um, as you, as I mentioned, love the Wild Play book. Everyone should read it. Um, can you give us an insight? Well, I'm... I'm passionate about it. Can you give me an insight into the thoughts behind it um, and what people can expect from reading it? Yeah, it's a, um, that book is really interesting because, uh, first of all, it would never have happened if I hadn't been a good journaler, especially mm. in for uh, parenting in the early years. So it was because I committed myself to uh, journaling what it meant to be a parent and my observation of my own kids, um, that I could write the book. Um, and, um, and I actually, and so I wrote it not intending for it to be a book, but I wrote it in uh, essays over a period of years and gradually started to see that there was a, that there was an emergent pattern in how I parented 
uh, to connect my kids to the natural world and how it changed as they got older. And so because I journaled, I could write these individual essays that uh, allowed me to understand what was going on with them. And then because I did it over a long period of time, I was able to assemble it into a package. So I think what people can uh, look for in that book is a, is a developmental understanding of, of how you parent kids to be uh, nature kids and how your responsibility and parenting techniques change as they go from early childhood to middle childhood to adolescence. Yeah. And I, I love a quote that's in, in the book um, and it's by David Thoreau. Um, the more slowly trees grow at first, the sound of that they are at the core. And I think it's the same. The same is true for human beings. Right. And it's such a, great quote because it's in contrast to society and community. Uh, it's fast paced. It's like, we've got to get it done. We've got to get these things ticked off the list. It's about the outcome, not the process. So what's your tips for like parents, educators in creating that margin to just slow down with our children? Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I'm trying to figure out how to elaborate on what you just said, because you said it nicely. Um, I know that with my own kids, especially with my son, is that I started, I started to realize that I expected him to be at a place about 18 months before he got there. Right. So I would expect that he should be doing certain things or having certain kind of develop meeting certain developmental milestones. Uh, and uh, and the problem. And so it caused frustration in me because he wasn't there when I thought he should be there. And then I realized that 18 months later, he arrived there. Right. So it became when I when I realized it, I started to understand that. Uh, the problem was my anticipation, my wanting him to grow up faster than he was growing up. And that if I just uh, got rid of my anticipation, my expectation that he should be at a certain point at a certain time, then things would be a lot better. Um, and he always got to those places. He just got there more slowly than I anticipated. So, um, you know, our expectations as parents and as teachers is that there's a certain point at which kids are supposed to arrive. And um, that's often not the case. Uh, should I, I can give a, an interesting for instance here. Should yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. This it didn't have to do with nature, but it had to do with um, reading. You know, we're so uh, compelled, at least in the United States, to uh, get kids reading fast. And my child, my daughter went to a Waldorf school. And by the time she was in third grade, she was not really much of a reader. Um, and uh, we were starting to get anxious about it. Um, and she obviously came from a literate family. So that the fact she wasn't reading in third grade was a little concerning. So then we, I took a sabbatical and we moved to um, Costa Rica uh, for a half of a year. And the kids went to a school, a bilingual school in Costa Rica. And my daughter was in a third grade class and, the, and it was just the norm that all the kids in that class were reading. And so she went from 
a so it was really important that she be a reader. She went from being a first grade reader to about a sixth grade reader in about a month. Wow. Right? So we expect kids to go, you know, to progress incrementally along certain developmental pathways. Yeah. A lot of time it's much more punctuated. You know, it's all of a sudden there's this big growth when it has to happen. Yeah. Okay. And it's that, um, that match between the congruency between the environment and the that produces the behavior. Right. Right. No, she was she was in an ecosystem to use your framing right. of that learning that nourished and contributed and provided the um, consumption and the inspiration to move forward. Right, exactly. Um, we, we were just having a conversation with some early childhood educators last night around the, there's a huge expectation gap between where the parents want their children, the expectation of how their children are cared for, their priority in learning, and. Um, the word that kept coming up was, oh, we're told we should. And they're shooting and shooting and shooting all the time. Right. Right. And um, yeah, shooting on our children was the phrase that the group came up with. <laughs> I like that. I did yeah. some profession I did some professional development at a at a high pressure independent school. It actually was interesting because it was the school, it was an independent school right across the street from where I grew up when I was uh, bonding with the natural world and the salt marshes um, and um, they told me that the the preschool teacher and the school were being um, uh, being sued by parents because the their four-year-old wasn't per, wasn't learning how to read fast enough right <laughs> so it's that's the perfect example of the should taken to the legal limits yeah and then we see the collapse of that child later right. on. Yeah, exactly. Because we don't, we haven't built that foundation. Right. It, it's a, it's a brave new world for our, our children out there. That's for sure. Right. And I, I found it really interesting. Your son was 18 months behind that, but he's the second born and a boy. Right. So right. with, with that framing, it would anticipate it, but you're always going to, we just have, have a, as parents, we're measuring against. Our, yeah. Should, and it was, if you will. Again, my daughter was incredibly articulate really early, um, but very, it, she turned out to be one of those kids that was not physically adept versus my son, who was not uh, uh, verbally adept much at all early on and became remarkably physically adept, you know, and so different kids, different, uh, different uh, processes and different levels of different areas of expertise. And that, that leads into um, a point, my next question actually, around um, the genetic inheritance. Yeah. Um, I, I love that phrase of genetic inheritance from that ecological theory. So can you um, deconstruct that and the meaning and how, how we see it? Yeah, I, I'm indebted to uh, a lot to an uh, author named Paul Shepard, who is a cultural anthropologist, and also a, a Joseph Chilton Peirce, who wrote a bunch of books, the first one called The Magical Child, who, um, and both of them essentially contend that we are essentially hunters and gatherers genetically, that the primary, that the human uh, 
the Homo sapiens species spent 95% of its time in evolution as hunters and gatherers, and that the agrarian revolution followed way after by the uh, industrial revolution and then the technological revolution. But all that, all that stuff from uh, the agrarian revolution is really only the last 10,000 years. So we spent 200,000 years uh, as hunters and gatherers. So our, our gene structure is basically that for hunters and gatherers. So to get a sense of what's natural for a child, we should look at um, hunting and gathering cultures, ch the childhoods of children in traditional hunting and gathering tribes, like indigenous, indigenous Australian folks, or in the Americas, the Native American tribes, um, or in Africa, the Kung Bushmen. Uh, those are those are what childhoods ought to look like. And so, a lot of the in the United States, the work of the um, nature mentoring uh, movement or the coyotes uh, the coyotes guide to bonding, connecting with nature, all that stuff that has to do with uh, wilderness skills, uh, building forts and learning how to make fire and all that kind of stuff is what is is what kids are genetically disposed to want to do. Um, and if we if we allow them to do that, they grow up to be uh, independent, self-motivated, uh, uh, strong children. And then all the academic stuff come, is uh, develops on a much cleaner and stronger foundation. Yeah, and do you think that, um, for lack of a better phrase, the forcing of children into these academic academic centric um, environments are having a long term negative impact on that genetic inheritance of like this conflict between I want to get out, I want to move, I want to explore, I want to experience, I want to seek thrill, danger. Um, I want to chase the thing that wants to chase me type of mindset right. instead of this regimented sit down structure. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's counterproductive to their, to children's physical development. Um, you know, once I had a teacher once who said to me, you know, what, six-year-olds want to do is is uh is run around outside and what we do when kids become six years old is put them at sit them at desks inside and so uh, you know a, a schooling situation or an educational setting that includes being outside half the time for kids from you know four years old up to nine years old would be way healthier than what we have now yeah. And so what's your tips for parents around that? Like, obviously, schooling, schooling, it's going to happen. We can slowly advocate and change right. um, from our side, building playgrounds and advocating for children's play within schools and external schools. But beyond that, what's your recommendations for parents? Yeah, parents should be uh, outside with kids um, or children should be outside uh in some kind of either uh, unorganized uh, play situations or organized play situations, uh, three to four hours a day, right? Um, 
And, uh, you know, so after school programs that are more outdoor physical play oriented or, um, or um, schools that offer one day a week forest Friday kinds of programs or uh, vacation camps that are physically oriented, all the opportunities that parents have for physical movement in the natural world should be taken advantage of. And some, some organized sports stuff is okay, but it shouldn't be the only way in which kids get that kind of experience outdoors. Yeah. And um, Australia has a terrible, terrible um, ranking on the physical activity for children. We're perceived as the like outdoor country, but we're really not. Um, we rank extremely low on those charts because we are like love our sport. So there's a lot of organized sport, but there's a lot of sprawling suburbs. Right. And um, yeah, what there was one world study in it out of 146 countries, Australia was ranked at 140th really? for physical activity. Yeah. Shocked. And um, it was deemed a state of emergency on children's physical activity in Australia. Right. Um, so we're, we're, we're up against it. We're um, for obesity rates, we're top 10. Um, and, and there's an urgency to it. We're seeing this, um, I was working with one school where we're doing a nature play, like junkyard playground down the back of the school, completely ran by the children. And, um, out of 60 children in that prep area, um, there's 50 children that need additional support in some way being physical, academic, behavioral. Wow. Um, so there, there, there is an amount of urgency to it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was actually, I, I was at that training last night. It was a challenging area and with the, and the educators were saying, our children don't know how to play. Right. Yeah. Um, so what's, what's, I know it's a, a bit of a funny question, but what's your thoughts on children not being, not knowing how to play? Cause there's yeah, lots well, of different thoughts on that. Well, it, it has happened because um, there used to be this cycle of uh, of intergenerational, not intergenerational, but cross age grade, cross age play in neighborhoods um, where older kids and younger kids played together, and so older kids basically taught younger kids how to play, or you know, younger kids watched the older kids, they played with the older kids, and um, and there was a cultural transmission that happened from younger, from older kids to younger kids of how to play capture the flag or how to play yeah. uh, any of those kind of outdoor games or jump rope games or different kinds of ball games or made up ball games. And so that cultural transmission from older kids to younger kids has been cut off. So there's no vehicle for kids to understand how to play outdoors and parents often don't play outdoors. So you have to teach kids how to play. There yeah. was a school uh, not far from here uh, that would start the school year teaching recess. And so when you went outdoors for recess, it didn't, for the first six weeks of the school year, you didn't go outside and have free form recess. You had to choose one of four or five activities 
outdoor play activities or were led by a teacher and gradually you got to have you gradually got to have some choice but they taught the kids how to play um, and that's become our responsibility or the responsibilities for environmental educators or other kinds of after-school programs that you have to you have to be conscious about it um, yeah. it's in there you know kids will kids will warm to it um, and and learn how to and learn how to play themselves um, but there has to be some conscious intention yeah. yeah I think I hear time and time again it was like I accidentally grew up in the best time to be a child yeah. this was that accidental learning of being right. outside and playing right. it was the yeah. accidental experience of engagement right. um, a nice success story I'd like to share with you there was a school called Barambar East here in Brisbane and uh, COVID hit, they wanted to shut down the school. The principal took the stance and said, well, my community is like above 30% highest risk category. Mm -hmm. So my school's open, like it's better for them to be at school. Mm -hmm. So he, but he had to keep, have the whole program, whole school outside. Right. So what he did is did a bit of a junkyard playground on the tennis court. He opened up the out of bounds areas. Um, and he instantly saw there was a huge reduction in all these behavioral challenges, the interaction between children went up and a year on, they've continued the program outside. They've had a policy change around plays not to be um, deprived as punishment. Mm -hmm. And, um, in that first year, they saw a 60% drop in violent incidents, right? Like ma major incidents at the school, right. um, their attendance went up. Their, every, the children's grades went up, like 25% of children moved into getting the C's and A, C's to A's range, right. all by just taking the program outside. So it kind of leads me to my next program, my next program, my next question is you have a lot to do with these outdoor bush kindies and you get to see a lot of different ones. What are the key indicators of success for a great program in getting children outdoors? That's a good question. Um, there actually, there's actually a really good document in the United States right now. That's a good, that's specifically, these are what, these are the quality, uh, descriptors for really good, uh, in the United States are called nature preschools or, yep. uh, or forest or forest kindergartens. Um, so there's good documents that describe all that stuff now. Um, it's, uh, you know, some of the attributes, half the time outdoors, a good balance between teacher-directed and child-directed activities, um, a, 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 a conscious attention to appropriate clothing and provisioning appropriate outdoor gear. Uh, it's interesting in the United States that the nature schools movement, the early nature-based early childhood movement in the United States has for a long time been a northern tier um, a phenomenon. So it happens in all the cold places in the United States. So one of the, one of the places that's one of the hotbeds of nature-based education at the early childhood level is Duluth, Minnesota, which is probably the coldest place in the United States. And so... <laughs> You know, this is the temperatures there are regularly um, 
you know, 20, uh, 10 degrees centigrade below, uh, 10 degrees centigrade wow. below zero. Uh, and so they have, they are really conscientious about uh, clothing, outdoor clothing provision. So kids can comfortably be outdoors in really difficult weather. Um, the Another attribute is teachers who um, model uh, being on the ground and being getting messy with kids. Um, let's see, other attributes. Um, a, a commitment to communicating with parents about what they're doing when they're outside and how that outside experience is addressing learning goals and learning competencies. Yeah. So those are some of the attributes. They're kind of stepping in that role of the older child you mentioned earlier, yes. modeling the behavior, right. um, creating those guardrails, if you will, to if anyone gets off track and bump them back in. Not physically, I might add, just right. <laughs> redirect. Yeah. I love the story that you talk about with your daughter in the book. And um, <laughs> she's talking about pooping. All right. And then, and then she sees the car with the exhaust. And you said the poop at your house went down into the lake and it becomes soil. And she right. sees the car as a toddler and says, oh, is the, the car exhaust, is that making soil? Right. And you are liking that experience to her understanding and using her experience to understand her the ecological framing right. of the world. Right. Yeah. So, and this was one of those things that evolved, you know, rather yeah. than it being intentional on my part, was mm -hmm. that I started to, I started to reflect on my, on the language that I would use with kids. And I wanted to try and make sure that I wasn't using mechanistic metaphors, you know, so the, the you know the brain being like a computer is a is a, is a mechanistic metaphor, and so uh, I tried to explain stuff using natural world metaphors rather than uh, uh, rather than constructed world metaphors, uh, and so uh, and that was based on recognizing that language development came about through differentiating the natural world. So language development in the human species most likely had a lot to do with the need to identify different, uh, different flora and fauna for the purposes of understanding whether you could eat them or not, or whether they were going to hurt you or not. So that early language was based on differentiating the natural world. So with young kids, that's why the whole, that's why a lot of early language development in young kids, language learners, one and two year olds has to do with animals, yeah. right? Is that they quickly learn, that's one of the things that kids quickly learn is to differentiate animals because there's a, a biological disposition towards that. So as kids get older, you want to use natural metaphors, you know, that, uh, you know, your hand is moving the way a bird flies through the air, um, as opposed to your hand is moving like a metronome or your hand is moving 
like a uh, can't come up with a, a mechanistic version. Uh, <clears throat> so I was very intentional eventually in trying to explain when I would explain stuff to kids to explain things to them in terms of observable natural world phenomenon. So that the analogies were always to natural world things rather than to built world things. Yeah. That starts to get at what we were talking about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, I'm really interested in how you highlight the importance of the dream life also. Yeah. And that um, magic of the metaphoric. Um, we talk as when being playground designers, um, well, I like to call it play environment designers. Um, we talk to it in terms of wonderment, but um, why is it so important from your viewpoint to support that dream life in our children? Well, there's a lot of answers to that. For one, uh, you know, the dream life is one form of imagination or one form of, of envisioning the world. And so there's, um, this is an idea I think that emerged from my understanding of Joseph Chilton Pierce, is that uh, children have access to the dream world and to uh, imagination uh, early in early childhood. And there's a natural tendency for it to go away in middle childhood when you want to, when logic becomes ascendant. But then in adolescence, what you need is the synthesis of logic and dreaming or logic and fantasy or logic and imagination. So early childhood, you're supposed to develop the, the, the dream world fantasy uh, capacity. Middle childhood, you're supposed to develop logic. In adolescence, you're supposed to integrate them. So. Uh, if you don't have it in early childhood, then it doesn't, it's not reintegratable later on in adolescence and then in adult life. So, um, uh, there was an example I wanted to give. Oh yeah, this, um, so this access to the dream, to, to the dream world or the fantasy world was, um, particularly driven home, and it's described in the Wild Playbook. When my, I think my kids were about four years old and two years old, and my wife went on a canoe trip for 10 days in Canada. And so this was the first time that basically she was away for a really long period of time, and I was with them by myself. And um, it, was, it was particularly hard on my daughter. And... Um, so, you know, she was crying and being kind of sobby and tearful. And so I went and told them a story about a little girl who was really sad about her mother being away. And, um, and so what happened was that in the story, the little girl at night in her dreams would go and visit her mother. And I, and I, uh, and I narrated a kind of, a, you know, in the dream, the little girl would follow a stream and they, she would come to a pool and there was another stream that came into the pool and her mother would follow the stream and they would come to the same pool and they would uh, play together. And, and so 
I, from the story I said, I suggested to my daughter that in her dreams, she do this. Uh, and <coughs> lo and behold, it actually, it actually happened. You know, the next day, the next morning she wakes up, she says, yep, I, I went in when I was dreaming last night, I dreamt about this dream and I followed it and I met mommy and we played together. And then, then she started to describe things that they did that I had not described. So I knew that she was actually describing this dream experience that she had had. So the, the capacity for her to bring an intention out of waking life into her dream life, uh, perhaps kids are more capable of doing that. And then she had this, uh, and then she had this kind of potent dream and it really helped her over the course of the time that her mom was away to not feel really sad about her and feel connected with her mom while she was away. So there's all these kind of, um, uh, you know, kids relationship to dreams and to fantasy is much different than ours. I like to say that, you know, when you have a nightmare, and it's and the nightmare is incredibly vivid and strong and it's you know and it really upsets you and it's hard to separate yourself from the emotion of the nightmare that's the quality of dream experience for kids a lot of the time is that it's much it's much more vivid and alive than it is for us as adults and so we want to kind of take advantage of that kind of the vividness of the of the dream world and the fantasy life of children. Yeah, hundred percent. I was only recently, I was listening to a podcast and I've got to look into it more, but they were saying around that within development of consciousness that children haven't developed their complete consciousness and understanding in like those stages of cognitive capacity, but there's some needs to be something within the brain to fill it. So it is that it's filled with that dream and it's built with that like theta state of mind of that semi, um, um, semi hypnotizable state right. that a lot of the function of the brain is in through those in early years. So it ties in like nicely with what you're saying and right. explains with um, why it is so accessible to our children as well. I mean, I had, but, was, I was driving the kids to school one day and um, this was a, this was a phenomenon that I was made aware of by Joseph Chilton Pierce, who talked about kids shared, uh, shared dreaming, right. Where mm. you both, uh, you know, two different people have the same dream and meet in, you know, meet in the dream and have the same experience. And, um, and the, I was driving the kids to school and they, one of them started talking about a dream they had. And the other one said, yeah, I had, I was, I had that same dream. And then they started talking about what happened in the dream. Wow. So it was, <laughs> I couldn't really, it was, it's so alien to me that this is a possibility, you know, for my adult consciousness. Um, so the fact that it, that they potentially had a shared dream is really fascinating. So that suggests that there's just this whole other kind of, of consciousness in childhood that we are not take not looking at or taking advantage of. Absolutely. I look forward to like considering the advancements that have been made in understanding the brain in a short amount of time. Right. Imagine where it's going to be in right. an additional 10 years from now. So, so exciting. Right. Um, 
reading your book and listening to your talk, it's I get the impression that you you're very accepting of where you're at as a parent, um, accepting the challenges, accepting the flaws, and plenty of like wholesome reflection on your own experience. So. Leveraging on that experience, what's your recommendations for parents around the language they can use and how to be authentically connected with their child? I'm thinking of my uh, my stepson and his daughter. So my stepson, he's about 23 seven or eight and his daughter is about so our one of our granddaughters she's about two and a half and um and he's been a house dad his he's a he's a realtor so he's uh his work schedule is much more flexible and his wife is a nurse at the local hospital and so he wound up uh he winds up being the the the, the stay-at-home parent a lot of the time and he, with his daughter, our granddaughter, was remarkably conscientious um, for a couple of for the past couple of years. It's changed now because they have another new child. But he was remarkably conscientious at always, every day, essentially taking his child uh, on an outing. Uh, and a lot of the times, it was to the stream where the child would play independently. And it's, um, I think that commitment to the recurrent, it's, it's, you know, with young, starting with kids as early as one or two years old, the recurrent outdoor experience in the same place or over a variety of similar places over and over is a really powerful experience and it's part of how uh, in uh, developmental psychology talk about shared attention, the shared attention of the parent and the child on the natural world is uh, constructs uh, a sense of valuing that the child has. Um, and so I think that's what parents need to be doing. And that's what, you know, I tried to do a lot or I learned to do a lot was that kind of, shared time outdoors, uh, some of which was, you know, I had an intention about, but some of which was we went outside and had an adventure and saw what was happening and kind of followed it. Um, so I think the shared attention on the natural world uh, on a regular everyday basis is really important. Living the shared dream, if you will. Right, it's a good way to say it. Um, Hypothetically, I love a good hypothetical. Uh -huh. um, you have a message that every parent will receive with their first when their first child is brought into the world. What is it? What What's the message for the parent? And secondly, what is the message for that child? Yeah, I think this. I think the message to the parent and the child is the same. I think it's. Um, appreciate the gift of life on earth. Um, and I think uh, I can tell that that's a good message because when I started to say it, I choked up a little bit. Um, is it, um, it's really easy to lose the 
know, the, lose the understanding that this is a gift. This whole idea of this 70 or 80 years that we, or 90 years that we get is a gift and um, it's ephemeral and um, it, for a lot of people, uh, it's, there's too many hardships to appreciate that it's a gift, but it really is a gift and um, we should not look the gift horse in the mouth. We should appreciate it and, um, and kind of commit ourselves to unwrapping it every day. That is a good answer. You're making me get choked up now as well. What are you doing, Mr. Sobel? <laughs> um, <laughs> threw me off. Um, what's, what are you most, uh, what, what's exciting you in the field of nature play and um, in your work at the moment? It's, um, it's been fascinating for me to see the growth of the nature-based early childhood movement in the United States. Um, and um, it's uh, encouraging for me to see that it's moved from little independent nature preschools to, uh, you know, um, I've mentioned Duluth, Minnesota before where this big emphasis on nature preschools in, uh, in private schools in the, around the city of Duluth has led to the Head Start program, which is the program for low income uh, kids in public schools, that there's now a public preschool program with a big emphasis on naturalizing the public school preschool program. So it's fascinating to see the movement from uh, independent schools into the public schools. And similar to the story you told recently, uh, it's interesting to see the potential good of the pandemic, right? So there were a lot of schools in the United States, especially in New England, that moved school outdoors as a function of the pandemic and have now tried to uh, uh, make that a, a regular part of the ongoing schooling for kids if there ever is really a post-pandemic um, mm. feeling mildly post-pandemic but not completely like that in the United States but a lot of schools are trying to hold on to well we moved outside it was really better for the kids and the teachers we're going to keep we're going to hold on to that in some ways yeah we're seeing it too it's really encouraging right. um, we just got to try to maintain that momentum now right but um, I have to honour you for your huge contribution to, for that happening as well okay. and um, the tireless work you've done um, so artistically and beautifully putting the messages out there about the importance of nature play, making it accessible to people. Um, so thank you for the inspiration for myself and thank you for all that you've done for so, so many educators, children and parents across the world. Thanks, Lucas. I, I appreciate that coming from you. Thank you. Um, where can people find you? Um, and we'll also put all the notes in the show notes. Yep. The uh, access to a lot of my books and articles at the davidsobelauthor.com web pages. Fantastic. Well, thanks again on behalf of. Worthy on behalf of the children of the world. Appreciate you and thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for your advocacy, Lucas, as well. <laughs>